Good evening or good afternoon or good day, I suppose. Depends on when you're listening to us. Uh, welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind. I am half of your host, Nicholas Larimer, joined as ever by the other half of your hosts. Gabriel Krauser. Uh, that that uh, NPR voice you do is always so good. <laughs> so, Dude, it's not as good as yours. But thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm sitting. I'm sitting in the dark currently because um, the unions have decided to uh, intimidate people and block roads, and as a result, I am sitting in the dark because we're on the stage four, which is always delightful. But anyway, kvetching aside, uh, Gabriel, you wanted to talk today about things that are difficult to talk about because you have read or heard about some fancy pants who has some interesting ideas about this kind of thing. I do. Um, but before we get there, you're having a tough time uh, locked down. Well, not really. Uh, I mean, I have an inverter now, so this is why I'm able to record the podcast despite not having electricity. So let me tell you about me. I am in a house that has an inverter. I can't find it. I'm house sitting. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and they're in like the south of France, plucking grapes from the vine and drinking Bordeaux and swallowing olives that are the best olives and whatever it is that people do in that very gentle sunshine. Um, but I can't complain too much about where I'm at. Because I've got like one of those fireplaces that's like a gas fireplace. And we only fire it up not that much in a day, but just fired it up. And it's so cozy. I have it's a much nice. cheaper solution. It's called wearing multiple jackets. Yes. That's what that's how I usually go at home. We don't <laughs> if we make a fire, it's on a Saturday, it's outside, and we put meat on it. That is what we spare the wood for the meat. So my my parents have a uh, an anthracite burning sort of heater stove type thing, which is magnificent at keeping the house sort of toasty permanently. Unfortunately, it also fills your lungs with black soot. So you know, pros and cons. Trade offs. Life's all about trade offs. My sister just bought a fireplace, um, and has been you know like wanting to and worrying about which is the right one to get and putting it off and it's like being winter after winter and they've got a fireplace but it's sort of in the wrong room where no one goes sort of so this is one of those um you know freestanding ones uh that they can put in the in the room where everyone goes and it it was imported or you know like i don't think we make fireplace we don't even make matches or or <laughs> Tooth, toothpicks. We don't manufacture toothpicks in South Africa, so I don't think we manufacture any fireplaces. Uh, so this came in a big box in a crate, and it was delivered at a spot, and then my sister like, had this guy help her put it in the boot of her car, and it just totally fell over and made a terrible sound, and she was very afraid. And so she went away and, and was very upset, and then a week later she called me, and she was like, dude, come, let's have a drink. And then once we've once we've once we've had a drink, let's go look at this thing because I'm very sad, <laughs> and I need to process this with someone else. So we did, and it was it was fine. It was unbroken. Some of the uh, like insulator blocks on the inside had been dislodged, so they were rattling around, which made 
that terrible noise of uh, the death rattle. But um, once they were put back in place, it was totally fine. Anyway, so that was one good thing. Another good thing was removing the masks. We won't go on about it, but it's the end of the lockdown. No more yeah. mask mandate, no more travel limits. And the nice thing about that was yesterday I went to the symphony at the, at the Linda Auditorium, the Johannesburg Philharmonic, and they were too lazy and useless. I mean, I must say they generally, you know, the, the, the Johannesburg Philharmonic Orchestra had such a roller coaster. The, the third to last administrator stole all of the money. None of the musicians got paid for like two and a half years. The thing, they tried declaring bankruptcy, but the labor courts were like, dude, you can't declare bankruptcy because someone stole all the money. What's going on? That's not bankruptcy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this, is not, this is not a good excuse. <laughs> Try again. Go, go, go to jail. Like, you can't pass go. You do not collect 200. This is, anyway, they, they, they were saved and... I think I told the story, you know, Dekang Moseneke just retired as Deputy Chief Justice and he and the freshly minted mayor of Johannesburg, Herman Mashaba, showed up and made wonderful speeches about how if you close your eyes, you can just listen to the music and you don't see anyone's race. And and that's sort of how we should always live. <laughs> and I love, I, I, I remember that very fondly. Um, and and uh, anyway, uh, so so if, if if the JPO had been the most dynamic version of itself, then yesterday morning they would have been advertising that there are an extra 200 seats available uh, that had been kept empty for the because of the law, um, and you know come and get them and 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 celebrate music and 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 a beautiful a beautiful city with a beautiful orchestra that got uh, making evil music by evil Russians, but you know, other than that, all very good and come along and enjoy it. Um, and, uh, and they didn't, but the benefit of that was that I could, th th there were all these empty seats. So Elena and I could go and sit in the like 500 Rand seats right Ooh. in the front eyeball level with the cellist. You pretend to be rich for a day. Oh, dude, it is so deluxe. Fantastic. Um, so I'm very pleased about that, and and uh, and pleased about uh, reading some of the Zondo report last editions Zondo five. I think that there's uh, I think that the I, a couple of weeks, like almost a month ago, um, I wanted to do a podcast just called "The Shift in the Force." Maybe we even did do it. I can't remember. We did do it. That uh, was literally the title of the last episode, I think. <laughs> we did do it. Dude, and isn't aren't you feeling that like on Tuesday? I am so feeling it was? that. Like yeah. that that prediction I said about how this looks sort of a bit difficult for Ramaphosa. And if the allegations are substantial, it's going to be a real pain for him. Yeah. It really has turned out that that is the case. Like I now notice that. Uh, do you remember when Inkandla was happening? The news site started to add like a Inkandla tab for the Inkandla news. Yes. I've now yes, on, yes. on Times Live. There's a Pala Pala tab, <laughs> and that for me is a sign that you are in the twilight years of your popularity. <laughs> yes. It's uh, an interesting. It's very Cyril, interesting. Hey? The good years for Cyril are behind him. <laughs> he is now going to Dude. be facing a difficult time. I mean, this morning, the first five things that popped up into my feed, it was Newsroom Africa, SABC, um, uh, Times Live, something international, all saying uh, Zondo report, very critical of Cater deployment and of Ramaphosa. 
Yeah, the, the South African on the day that the Zona report came out had a bullet point eight section of times that Ramaphosa had messed up according to the Zonda report. Yeah. It was great. It was like really easy reading and just, you know, and and they normally don't do like kind of, you know, because they're kind of no. quite a casual news site, but it was actually they one of like the most the, useful things I read. They were like the good things guy decided to not just always tell good news stories, but still have that, yeah, fairly jolly tone. Yeah, man. I mean, it is... I do think it's worth feeling like I don't want to. I don't. I don't feel Schadenfreude for people that are going through what I went through very dramatically. Actually, in this house that I'm house sitting, this is the house where I saw Ramaphosa get elected in 2017 at the Nazareth election. I was I was sitting uh, right in the room next door, um, and the maid and I did a little dance and ululated with each other because we were so excited. Uh, and then that night, and then I stuck around and was like drinking booze and was like phoning all my friends. And then that night, I saw his speech about where he said expropriation without compensation. And it was <laughs> oh. the shortest moment of jubilation in your life. <laughs> Dude, it is like it is like being on ecstasy, MDMA, and then a family member's just passed away. It's like it's like such a conflict of interest in your in your neuropsychology, like the the dopamine. <laughs> is racing against the depression like there's a real tussle going on for 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 the mood spirits um and i'm sure a lot of south africans have been going through a slow-mo version of that and uh and it's and it's only accelerating right now um but it's yeah i mean i do think it's good for the country for my favorite i've got to say my favorite thing is the is the bit where Zonda talks about like maybe we should elect the president directly? And I heard about that and I was like, oh Lord, he's trying to he's trying to excuse Ramaphosa and say, you know, if only. But then if you read it, he's like, you know, probably the people still would have voted for Zuma, and that's a bummer. And actually, the real problem is that there's this party that sustained uh Zuma and oh, that party, ish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not gonna say who they are, but man, those guys should really <laughs> Wow, how did they do that to us? Like, <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, I yeah, yeah. I must say, I I don't think. Should we talk about that at all? That that specific idea uh, about whether directing electing the president is 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 you know useful I, in any way? No, I don't have a dude. I think you know it's great for the U.S. More gridlock in South Africa. I think it's a bad idea. It's a, the the thing about it is like it's the kind of idea, in my opinion, that would be bad for the next twenty years and good for the next century. Uh, but the process to achieve it is just not something I think it's yeah, worth putting energy into. So That's kind of my feel. Like if I was designing a country from the ground up again, uh, I would be like, oh, okay, maybe we should directly elect the president. But in the current state we're in, this is like priority number 8,847. It's yes. not really useful. It's not going to have a lot of immediate benefits. Yeah. Dude, there are individual potholes that have given birth to families of potholes, <laughs> where the nephew pothole is a bigger issue than like, <laughs> yeah, issue. yeah, yeah. Uh, besides, anyway, uh, you know, I can't. I, I can. I can only see a situation where you know, in our current state of being, this might actually ensure an anti president goes on for longer. That, yeah, that's what I'm saying. For the next ten years, yeah. like as much as I mean, although. Isn't it interesting, like Ramaphosa is taking such a knock 
um, that I don't know. Has 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 any opinion polling come out yet on his approval rating? Because I haven't seen any yet. I I spoke to um, someone who has some. No, some so someone who does not have. I think I mentioned that I was speaking to someone who was going to get some, but it's yes. not it's it's not been had yet. There's some focus group stuff which. Is oh, okay. Um, but there's a yeah, the uh, opinion polling. It must come, dude. The, these rich people, yeah, slow, slow, slow. You must, rich people must donate million rand now. Put it. I, in I, the, in I the suspect thing. though that it will take actually a while for the real effect to be seen. I think you kind of saw Correct. this a little bit with Zuma as well, which is that yeah. South Africans are quite switched off. I find um, in a lot of ways from like the nitty gritty of what's going on, and it takes a while. It's like a it's like a bog. The South African mind is a bit like a swamp. Takes a while for yep. it to settle to the bottom, but once it does, lo- dislodging it is no. Not- you mustn't try. No. Yeah. Yeah, dude. I think that's right, and I, and I do think it's there's a lot of mistrust in the media, and I think there's a lot of mistrust for people. I suspect that like people who come to parties with opinions, uh, at many levels of the social, of our economy. Are not necessarily greeted with, um, with welcoming curiosity. I think there's a lot of like, there's another drunken dude at the bar who's trying to corner you and shout you down and tell you about like, whatever new theory. So yeah, it takes a time, but let's see. Okay, anyways, but so generally, I just I just think it's been a really good week. Um, yeah. Nice and, chunk of good news for a while. So the yeah. thing about SA is it's very good at um, sort of beating you down uh, with just things going wrong and things being silly and just wasting your time. And then all of a sudden, what do you know? But you get a big shot of good news that turns a lot of things around all of a sudden. Dude, and I think if if I go back, if I, if I push my mind back to early, early two crickets, I think we really are in a different space because – one of the um, sort of paradoxes that that I remember I was talking about repeatedly was this paradox of hope. That South Africa seems to be a country that thrives on hope, that where the best and the worst never happen because people are kind of hoping their way through too much to really knuckle down and get the best to happen. Uh, but also, you know, civil war and all kinds of things just don't work when people are as soft and and hopeful as South Africa seemed to have tended to be. Um, and and we talked about, I mean, w- one way to frame it is Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, his thesis being that when civilization, when societies really collapses, because what's been their greatest strength is now going to be their greatest weakness. Circumstances have changed so that that strength is now rubbish. So it's like the hopeful, slightly complacent country uh, that has sailed close to the window and avoided absolute catastrophe uh, and somehow recuperated and, and and picked itself up from from bad mistakes, bad bad horrors and stuff. But uh, that 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 hope becomes its greatest weakness because it it means a lazy complacency, which allows the space for a small minority to really take over the country and uh, roll back democracy, rule of law, property rights, all kinds of civil liberties, and and reestablish South Africa as a poor authoritarian uh daymare and has worked for many countries what is many ruling cliques across the world yeah uh, 
And so, and I'm just like, it's a very robust form of government, surprisingly, despite being very inefficient. It's so rubbish. Once it's in, it's hard to, it's hard to replace because everyone's spending so much time just surviving (laughs) that there's no time to like, amongst other things. So, so, but it was like, do you remember talking about like hope? Like we need to lose hope. There was a yes, I think, yeah, exactly. That was our that was my uh, New Year's wish. I think at the end of 2019 was that hope would die. <laughs> Which is it was, dude. And you got it, dude. Bugger. Well, it, 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 the, that's the funny thing, of course, is that as hope died, I became far more hopeful than I ever have before. I was very <laughs> grim about the country until the last local government elections, and I was until like, oh man, actually, I think things might be okay. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's like there's so much voter apathy that ANC's dropped below percent. <laughs> exactly. So, so, it's a, so it is a paradox. And, of course, the idea is not for people to become totally depressed and despondent, but for people to stop thinking that one person messianically is going to save, you know, one politician is going to save the country, one Tsar-like figure, right. or that one party is going to save the country. And that you've got to shop around and look for fresh ideas and stop banging your head against the wall and expecting a different outcome. Right. And 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 just, you know, get involved. Like, it's yeah. not going to save itself and no one is coming to rescue you. Stand yes. up, do what you can, vote, be an activist, donate money, whatever you need to do, whatever is best for you, just do it so that you're not a victim of circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not waiting for someone else to do it on your behalf. There is you are the knight in shining armor, as as it were, in your own in your own movie. So I think that uh so I think we have had that shift. Um or or at least a shift in that direction in the force in a big way. But the flip side of it is that I mean it was always difficult to tell good news in certain quarters of South Africa, but it's like good news doesn't fly. Uh like I'm really not. It's like there probably is some underlying mirth, um, but I didn't see much by the way of celebration at the at the end of the mosque in public. Like lots of lists lighting up with dudes being very very pleased, um, but not a lot of public commentators uh, sort of being very jolly about it. And the Zonda report it is such a, a jolly thing in a way. Um, but of course, you know, most professional news makers and, uh, breakers are, are, are much too serious to, to say, look, this is another healthy sign of, of the country, uh, maybe being able to self clean. Um, and, right, and I think that is good. I think the suspicion about good news, no, don't tell me good news. It's not good yet. You know, it'll be good when there's real change. It's still just it's still just early science. I think that is a that's a nice place to be in. It's 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 hard, and this is the segue I'm looking for. It's like it's hard to talk about good news in a way in <laughs> South Africa, and I think that's interesting. And that is what you said at the beginning. I wanted to talk about things that it's hard to talk about. Right. So shall I do that? Shall I do Mr. Sandal? Yes. Tell us about Mr. Sandal. And Sandal was the kind of name. So if I may on a tangent for a bit please sir there's something i don't know whether it's just me selecting things out of the blue but i just it feels like a lot of 
very important people in academia often have very peculiar surnames. And I wonder if there's some sort of causal link between these two things. If that it's just easier to remember the name of academics who have strange names. <laughs> I mean, obviously, uh, 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 this is more sort of a feeling than an empirical thought. But uh, I, I, uh, I urge anyone listening who next time they hear about an academic with a funny name, just just keep it in your mind. Ponder it. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so and, and yeah. this came to mind because you said the guy's name was Sandal, and I thought that's. A, I don't think I've ever heard of anyone having the surname Sandal. Yeah, Michael J. Sandal. If you heard, oh, there's this guy who's got this theory. What's his name? Michael Smith. Man, oh, he's got this theory. Michael Sandal. Michael Sandal's got a theory. Ask. <laughs> yeah, it sticks in the mind, right? Yeah, it's a modern. Like, oh, it's the it's the the guy who's um you know the one who's named after the shoe sandal. That's what's it? Nike, Adidas? No, man, it's it's yeah, a yeah. kind of shoe, not that kind. Like boots. Professor Tacky. <laughs> Dude, I would re I would automatically be curious about what his theory is, like because there's this whole implied backstory of who knows what and how he got the name. Yeah, so I don't know how he got this name. I um, he's Harvard's uh sort of campus star professor so I, sometimes i talk about sort of campus stars and then rock stars and i think the idea is that the rock star is the kind of professor who you might have heard of anywhere else whereas campus star are the kinds of professors where right. everyone you're, on camp they, so rock yeah. star is like your thomas piketty yes character yes and campus star like these are the guys who have the most oversubscribed classes um like Joshua Katz, the guy who got fired from Princeton the other day for on double jeopardy, as he alleges. Anyway, so so Smith, uh, I mean Sandal put up um, a series of his lectures. He he got someone to film them and put them on YouTube about a decade ago, if I remember rightly. Um, when there was a bit of a, you know, academics couldn't tell what's the right idea about open source um, information sharing because on the one hand, information wants to share, be shared, and be free. I think part of the reason that academia and the media tend to have uh, a bit of a left-leaning uh, bent is because, you know, in, you know, like family values are a good idea within families, not a good idea in nation states, then it just becomes racism or race nationalism. Uh, likewise, like communism is sort of a good idea with information from each according to their ability to each according to their need. It's like not a bad idea for for how to run a conversation. Um, and most writers and musicians and artists, they, they sort of, you know, they want some money, they want some recognition, but they, they want to get the word out. They want to get the work out. Um, so there's a strong impulse to put it out for free, and then there's a countervailing impulse to um, preserve something special for the students, especially where there's question and answers, to what extent is it going to bend the thing? Anyway, never mind that. That's just really very background. The, the, the thing that struck me about his first lectures, other than the fact that it was the first lecture series I think I remember watching online from a different university, was that it started on ethics and political science with him really framing his opening lecture by saying, if you've come here in order to become more moral, or to become a better citizen, then you should probably leave for two reasons. So the one reason is that you've probably got the wrong attitude in order to get the best out of the class and, and to pass the class. Um, 
But the other reason, which is maybe deeper, is that sort of empirically you're probably wrong, or you at least might be wrong. Uh, in fact, he thinks you probably are wrong if you think that getting better informed about the first principles of ethics and political theory are going to make you a better person. He reckons that's, that's going to work out for a couple of people, but for, for many people it's not going to work out because it's so difficult and complicated that, it, that you're going to replace a set of ideas that, that are a mixed bag of right and wrong that kind of have an, a, a cogency that's workable. And you're going to replace that with just wrong ideas that are confused and muddled. And like there might be some right ones, but it's going to be like an unworkable thing. And, and I think it was a very abstract way of, of warding off wokeism, um, most pertinently, but a, but a range of other um, ideological errors. Uh, sort of, you know, don't come and try and be a, camp, a campus activist. And be prepared to to seriously address the thought that knowledge and truth and beauty, I mean, uh, goodness and truth and beauty, are not three sides of the same coin. Uh, right. The, the truth can be ugly, and uh, knowing it can make you worse. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, I think anyone who's lived in the real world has probably realised that at some point. Everyone's coming. Come into come into contact with at least one example of that in their lives. So you must just remember he is saying this to Harvard sort of nineteen year olds who's yeah. uh, like who all need to be told. They're not as bright as they think they are. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um so okay, so that's background idea. Yeah. So he's uh I I haven't read any of this material. I've like read a couple of little snippets from him a decade ago but uh elena my partner was reminding me she's been reading some of his stuff again for some people she's teaching and i thought it is quite interesting so he's got i'm just going to walk you through a series of case studies nick and then uh then maybe first some of the studies and then some of the ideas i don't know can bother me as you as you like for the right the ideas but this the the, the studies he 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 tells his story through studies so the first study is first done like in the 30s and then it's redone in the 80s or something and they ask a bunch of people how much money it would cost for them to do something you know how much money would i have to pay you for you to do this yes so, and there are like five or six things i'm not going to remember all of them one of them was to have your your toe chopped off. One of them is to have your tooth pulled out. Um, one one front tooth pulled out. One of them is to live in Kansas for the rest of your life without ever leaving. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll sign up for that one. <laughs> can I pay you? You don't have to pay me. You just yeah, tell me yeah, where. Exactly. <laughs> How much does that cost exactly? <laughs> I mean, Kansas is not my favorite place in the world, but I do I do like America, and I do want to see that part of the world. Anyway, sorry, continue, please. So, so, and I think the so, I mean, and there are a couple of others. I can't remember what they all were. Those were the ones that stuck out of my mind. And you know, partly there's this finding that people's rank ordering changes quite a bit through the years. Um. And so one of the arguments is, you know, maybe our values are changing, but maybe 
people just aren't really very good at accessing their values. Another part of the study is it seems like, you know, people might think A is worse than B, but B is worse than C, but C is worse than A. Um, it's a bit of an Aris theorem problem. I mean, I thought, oh, dude, what, what would you... So Arrow's theorem is a sort of terrible problem in in uh, in democracy. One of the reasons that rank ordering, you, you know, the some voting systems, you don't just vote for someone. You sort of say, what's your list? Right, the um, STV vote, single transferable vote. Yes. So... I think that um, happens in Australia, I think. Where I everyone has to vote. I think, it, I think at like lower levels, there are a few places that have it and in some, you know, more semi-private like companies and stuff. But so one of the things is it just turns out that uh, that there is no voting system of rank order preferencing, which is robustly resistant to logical con uh, contradictions like A is greater than B, B is greater than C and C is greater than A. So that's just a logical nonsense. But it turns out that if you let people vote, they're going to vote for that at some point. Um, right. So that's a, that's a that's a problem. Anyway, uh, for for some idealized versions of the best way to get people to vote. So, dude, what would you between between the tooth, the toe, and Kansas? Like, how much money would you need? Well, Kansas probably about fifty dollars. The toe, yeah. I'd put it pretty high. Um, you know, I'm not exactly a, a very mobile person. Um, in the sense that uh, I'm very lazy. Uh, so I don't know. Five hundred thousand rand. Little time. Five hundred thousand. Oh, yeah. Five hundred thousand rand. Yeah, I'd do that for five hundred thousand rand. Yeah. You're you're not anesthetized. Okay, maybe a million. Jesus, I'd do it for five hundred k. Not anesthetized. My little. Yeah, toe. the thing is. The thing is, though, you you like you know five hundred thousand like with inflation doesn't go nearly as far as it used to. So I don't know. I feel like I'd want to. Yes, you, I'd want them to tell me: Are there is the cash already there? Like, right? Or I'd are wanna, they going to make me wait six months for? Right. I'd want to. I want to be able to buy a house. Basically, I I would trade my little toe for a house. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, and I'm thinking <laughs> I would trade my little toe for less than a. I'd I'd trade my little toe for less than a house, um, and a tooth. That would be the hardest one for you to give up? No, oh, no. No, no anesthesia. <laughs> uh, uh, hmm, no anesthesia is not fun. Which tooth? It depends on which tooth. Like if it was one of front the front tooth. teeth. One front, front teeth. tooth. One front tooth. Yeah, I'll do that for five, 500K. Same as the toe? Uh, less, probably. Jesus. Okay, so you are like a, you are like a 1930s American peasant. <laughs> It turns no, out just, by the, it's like I've got like 30. How many teeth have I got? How many do you have? 32? Something like that. <laughs> that is not the issue. <laughs> Dude, how much do you think it costs to put that tooth back? Like, oh, you're just going to leave it like. I'm not going to put it back. <laughs> that would be a waste of money. Yeah. So vanity is not a big deal for you. Um, no. <laughs> And pain, like I think the big tooth would hurt much more. It's the kind of thing where if I was uh, if I was able to liquor myself up beforehand, it would probably be okay. I mean, it would be really painful, but you know, people lose their teeth all the time and they don't die from it. And the toe, toe is sore too. But like, if I had a house, you know, the sore the toe is going to be sore for what a few yeah. a few months. 
uh, a few years at, at absolute worst. The house is going to be with me for maybe 10, 20 years. Yeah, but I'm trying to compare the toe to the tooth. You're saying the toe is going to be twice as sore as the tooth. Uh, no, I just feel like the toe is more useful. Did and it would probably toe, be much more painful. Your little toe has done nothing useful ever. I'm surprisingly graceful for something so flat. Okay, it keeps me balanced. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, so, so that's one. That's one. That's one uh, study. And, and and so I think in the beginning, like the toe, people were just like, "Yeah, take away that toe. Don't need no the tooth." People were like, "Take away that tooth." Um, and I thought, yeah, it's probably because more people got there. Just more people were used to having their teeth yanked out by early dentists with no yeah with like a sip of rum exactly what you described like great depression <laughs> rural america that's where nicholas Lorimer's heads <laughs> and the, and anyway and the study found that people's like preferences just like totally inverted between the toe and the tooth one of the points that he wants to make with the study mr professor sandal is that um if someone says like i think for me kansas might be the hardest because I'd want so much money that I'd be able to fly friends in uh, and like fly villages of people in for parties and stuff so that I could get a sense of um, diversity. N Nicholas has muted himself, such, but he's laughing and shaking his head. <laughs> no, come on, man. You're such an aristocrat. The people who live there are the salt of the earth. They'd be, they have their own charm. I think you'd get very used to them very quickly. Oh, no, I do think I'd have a good time. But i got to say, I like being able to listen to people talk about Flaubert. Uh, that I've only read one book, you know, um, and a half. Like, I want to, I want to, dude, I want to go to the symphony. They probably haven't. I don't think they have a symphony in Kansas. I have to fly the JPO. And you can watch it Kansas. online, I'm sure. No, I like live. I like live. I do like, dude, I love, I, I love the theater. Um, so this okay. is this is a point on which we differ. I hate live performances, generally speaking. Yeah, uh, it's dude. It's like a religion to me. It it really is like a religion. So, um, so one of the things he wants to say is like, okay, let's say you you would be willing to live in Kansas if I gave you a million dollars. The wrong conclusion to draw would be that to be that you think people who do live in Kansas and are born and die there are like suffering a million dollars worth of pain. Especially if it turns out that it's like, it'll take a million dollars for you to live in Kansas forever, but you'll uh, let your tooth get ripped out for $25,000 like Nicholas just said. Okay, that doesn't mean that living in Kansas is like 80 times more painful than having your tooth ripped out. So this is... This is an argument about commensurability uh, that that a lot of utilitarian well, or yeah, it's also it's also just simply of the fact that we're not great at assigning value to things like where one lives, or how much money should be paid for pain, that kind of thing. Yeah. So okay, so 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 there are two ways of dealing with like clearly something's not lining up if you try and do the commensurability exercise and you say, okay, we've got one scale, which is money it takes to be compensated to do the thing. And then we've got six inputs. And then if we just put those inputs on the scale and then relate them to one another, uh, are you saying this is 10 times more painful than that? Or that's twice as painful? Like that's clearly not working out 
in a way that seems like it still makes sense. So something's gone wrong. It might be that you didn't put the pegs in the right part of the scale, which is what you're saying. Or it might be just that the, the idea of lining these all up on a single scale is somehow misconceived from the beginning. And I, I don't think he's trying to push one way or the other between those two things, but he's trying to flag those problems with the kind of consequentialist, um, with the notion of consequentialism. Either, we, either we're not going to be good at measuring consequences um, or there's just something inherently mistaken about trying to measure all consequences on the same scale. Okay, so there's one, and that's just a nice background um, thing. Uh, then we can get into price gouging. So, so the so the five up toe and tooth in Kansas price gouging, Purple Heart, Wall Street, Victorian, and Secrets. Uh, these are my reminder notes. So, price gouging very briefly. The idea is, you know, after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, was it? Yeah, um, it's uh, the levees bust and uh, a, th a fifth of the city's totally flooded, and there's like uh, complete chaos in the next two fifths. People, you know, shops are being looted. People are being shot dead in the streets. It's it's uh, it's really bedlam. Um, and then people are fleeing, you know, like like ants running away from the water or something, or, or you know, I don't know. Some like it's scary seeing those images from above. You know, people swimming and carrying their worldly belongings on their heads. People are going to higher ground. And they're seeking desperately for essentials. And, you know, maybe one of the essentials is a little boat. One of those little boats that the the CNN guys are going around in. Uh, really flat little motor at the back. And usually you could buy that thing for like $200 or whatever, $400. But the demand is super high. And the supply has not really shifted. It's only been a day or two. So the price, so prices go up, and the and the regular name for this is price gouging. And we all know what it was like when the pandemic started. So then his question is like, how should we think about price gouging? And I think you and I, during the pandemic, during the initial parts of the pandemic, were on the side that was saying, guys, please don't be too unreasonably critical. Um one of the things that happens if you try and fix prices is that you just run out of stuff quicker. Right. You just create a shortage and then people end up fighting over things anyway. So, you know, you don't make a huge difference. So he, he breaks things down. He's like, okay, what are the kinds of arguments that people can make? One is a consequentialist argument. And we've seen that consequentialist arguments are going to have some problems, but they're very important. And you've named a kind of consequentialist argument. Um, and, a, and I think a very good one. I agree with it. Then there's right. another... And, and the sort of flip side of the same thing, which is when people can make a lot of money off of something, then they may spin up production faster in order to take advantage of that uh, Absolutely. price. It's a huge incentive to reallocate assets and resources in order to chase that. That's what the market signal... That's what the pricing signal is supposed to be all about. Okay, so... There's a consequentialist argument that you should allow price gouging because of what you just said. Then there's like a deontic argument, an argument from the principle of, of being in a rules-governed society, which says the rule of our society is that if you've got something, it's yours, and you don't have to give it away 
unless you choose to. That is what a property right is. And that property rights are human rights. That it's a very real rule against your having your stuff taken away from you by the clever government. It's not a rule against taxation when there's a stable across the nation, you know, well-indexed, well-debated kind of agreement about what kinds of resources need to be allocated to the state in order to keep society functioning and to keep the market going, keep the courts and the police and so on going, amongst other things, to secure your property rights. That's one thing. But to just have a police or a soldier show up at your door and say, you have to give that away for free, or you have to give that away at the price I dictate, that is theft. That really is theft. It's not taxation. That is theft by the state or expropriation. So there's a rule against it. Now, you can imagine that there might... So he's saying, Sandal doesn't go so far as saying, consequentially, and uh, in terms of rights or deontic talk, uh, price gouging is okay. But he says you can at least see how there could be consequentialist arguments for it and how there could be deontic arguments for it. But then he's like, there's a third category, um, which is sort of like, in the traditional... Uh, philosopher's way, at least in a certain tradition, of breaking things down. It's like you've got Deontech, consequentialist, and then Nic Nicomachean ethics or virtue ethics, which is Aristotle's idea of, you know, balance. It's really the the question, what should I do, is answered by the 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 thing that a, a good person would do. So you shouldn't try and figure out good actions. You should try and figure out good characters, good you know, good virtues. You've got like you know. Don't be too reckless. Don't be too shy. Be courageous. Don't be too um, uh, don't be too chilled. Don't be too tight. Be kind of focused and calm, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, he kind of upgrades that to a kind of more social sense, getting to an esteem economy kind of place, where he says the third question is: What kind of signal are you sending to society when you? say this kind of behavior is good. And he's like, on that one, it's very hard to see how you can say thumbs up to price gouging. Because it seems like what you're saying is, like, dude's house is on fire, you've got a bucket of water, well, you know, greed is, it's like saying greed is good. Yes, it's like uh, standing on the top of a party and saying, yes. So, I think uh, the sort of not to I hope I'm not jumping the gun on this at all, but the uh, mm -hmm. sort of uh, uh, the liberal approach to this might be something along the lines of we should morally condemn and use sort of social pressure on people who do something like this, but we shouldn't actually ban it with the force of law per se. This could be a way of so you're sort of trying to have your cake and eat it too by saying, look you're allowed to do this because the consequences of stopping you from doing it are pretty bad. But at the same time, we don't want you to think that you're anything other than, a, than you know, filth <laughs> for doing this. Yeah. Or on the flip side, you, you, you socially reward people who don't do that. Right. Someone, someone who delivers it at a very similar price to what it was normally sold at. You go and you say, well, this is, this person's a hero. They got this stuff in really early. They are, uh, great, and everyone should think that they're the bee's knees. Hmm. And if ev and if the social pressure is so strong that everyone does that, 
then he has the nightmare. It is going to have bad consequences because whether the the low price is imposed by the state or whether it's imposed by social pressure, there really is this bad consequence insofar as you believe that argument and I do. There really is going to be this bad consequence where it's like, okay, you're selling it for the normal price. Suddenly they all run out. And so instead of people being like, I want to buy that boat because it really matters to me. I'm going to go save my grand or something. It's like, ah, dude, it's $200. I want to buy that boat because I want to go save my like goldfish. Uh, which can swim anyway, right? So, so there is this tension, but but so, and I think part of his, so I think you're right to say the liberal approach is a bit of a compromise, and I think that is where he, I think where he's going is in the same way that I suggested with the two toe and tooth thing, that there's an incommensurability problem that you can't really put everything on on one scale, and then use a formula to say okay, living in Kansas is like forty times more painful than having your toe ripped off or something. You can't actually put the the rules, the rights rules talk, the deontic talk, and the consequential talk, and the social opprobrium or reward talk, the esteem market talk. You can't fit. Those are going to give different answers of the right thing to do sometimes, and you're stuck with that. And you can't actually say which one is better because, like, they've they've all got their own merits. And life's a nightmare. And part of the reason it's a nightmare is because, like, not only do truth beauty and goodness not all line up but like goodness goodness and goodness don't even line up it's a it's a right this is this is the eternal problem of government in general is that you have to spend almost your whole life just muddling through yeah it's a it's it re compromised really it really is uh it really is a misery but it's but it's better okay let me get to the next example i think you might like this one purple hearts you might even even told me about this so there was a scandal. Soldiers. Yes. And then yeah. there was the scandal about should purple hearts go to people who have PTSD? That's a toughie, right? Because mm -hmm. on the one hand, you can see how from a rules, from a right rules perspective, what is the rule? You just said it. The purple heart goes to people who have made a sacrifice, they've been injured, they're carrying that injury. It's a serious injury. It's worse. Nick's rubbish about his little pinky toe and how it's going to hamper his grace. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about guys who've lost their kneecaps, yeah, et cetera. The, et cetera. Kind of, the kind of extremely debilitating lifelong pain that you can never get rid of. Like PTSD, right? Right. <laughs> the thing is, though, I think, I think part of the problem is that, you know, when it comes to the mind, it's very difficult to figure out what the sort of triggers are. You know, if your leg gets blown off because you stepped on an improvised explosive device, it's very obvious what happened. Mm. If you have post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, does it, you know, did you have a difficult childhood that then uh, resulted in you joining the army? And like, it's all because your whole sort of mental state and your personality is all. I like, how, I like how you said y'all there <laughs> did y'all did y'all have a tough childhood right. did your papa spank you with the with the hot iron is is the reason you have ptsd because you did something or saw something that shouldn't have happened uh you know like i don't know you saw one of your teammates shoot a whole room full of children or something like that yeah. uh then it's not it's got nothing to do with necessarily what what you did or should have been doing yeah with a purple uh, heart, like you know, I, I think uh, I've, I, I, I'm not I'm not fully equipped to address these challenges. I think they're good challenges. I do uh, wonder, like, 
the Purple Heart rule is going to be a sophisticated rule. So it might be the case that if you get injured in friendly fire, uh, you're flying in a helicopter and the anti-aircraft machinery shoots the helicopter down and you have a tough landing and you break your spine, uh, which has happened to some actors who've survived, but you know, has also could be really debilitating. Maybe you still get a Purple Heart. Uh, if so, then I think that sort of nullifies that argument. If not... Then it's then this is not about the fact that it's PTSD. It's about look, you only get a purple heart if you're injured right. you don't, in the you don't process get a purple heart by for, the enemy. Yeah, for 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 doing something incredibly negligent and then hurting yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're the dummy, you definitely don't get the purple heart. Maybe if your own teammates the dummy, one of the bummers is that you've you've not only like debilitated your fellow soldiers, but they don't even get like the the bonus. <laughs> The honor, okay, but so the main argument, as it turns out, the main argument that uh, stopped this from happening is they said, listen, guys, we don't care about the, this is not about the rights. The message you're sending is that weakness is to be celebrated. And it just is about weakness. We, I'm sorry to say this, and we're not saying, it's like when you get a purple heart for your leg being blown up, it just turns out that the that the machines are so much stronger than us that no one can blame you for not doing enough squats or sit-ups or push-ups. Uh, so there's no weakness judgment there. But when you're getting PTSD, there is a weakness judgment. We all make it, whether we want to admit it or not. We make that judgment, and we are not prepared. You are going to demean the honor of every previous Purple Heart recipient because whether you, even if you're a medical expert and you think that there's no weakness, you think Nicholas is talking rubbish about invoking whether you had a good childhood or a bad childhood, whether you came to the army to run away from a nightmare family or you were sent there. You volunteered to go there from a beautiful, loving family. Uh, you know, it might, from a folk a psychology perspective, make sense. Certainly to Gabriel it does. Certainly to Nicholas it does. Make sense to think that you're more likely to get PTSD if you uh, have had a traumatic time beforehand. Um but even if that weren't true, that is the general perception. That's what Nicholas and Gabriel think. And so they're going to perceive the Purple Heart as being... And we're not qualified. <laughs> but, they, but they're the ones who matter. The, the average dude right. on the street is the guy who matters. And because as long as he thinks... In theory, the, the next recruits, the next soldiers, the ones who are going to keep the machine running. But also, the whole point of the Purple Heart is to bestow an honor. And the honor is only a genuine honor if it's perceived to be an honor. By, in the eyes of the citizenry. So that's why we've got to strip people of Purple Hearts if they're found to be, you know, lying or... Uh, like if they shot themselves in the foot, which is a thing that soldiers sometimes do to get out of combat. Yes, then you absolutely got to strip it away because you need to preserve... That needs to be a highly esteemed thing. And what is highly esteemed is not up to you. You've got to check the society. And the society considers PTSD to be, to be however, however much they don't want to say it out loud, Society generally considers it to be a sign of weakness. So you can't mm -hmm. give this sign of strength to, as a sign of weakness. Although, to be fair, I do think that there has actually been a bit of a shift on that one because there's been a lot of very public discussions of people with post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, a lot of effort made to sort of say, you know, because this is a significant problem for soldiers, right? A lot of them... Uh, the whole don't admit it because it seems like yeah. yeah you've got to be tough you've got to be strong and then they get post traumatic stress disorder because of their service in you know in a conflict and they end up killing themselves or becoming an alcoholic or something like that because they never bothered to.
get help because they thought they would make them look weak. So I think there has been a lot of messaging efforts to try and turn that cultural perception, at least in, in the US, around. Yeah, uh, but I don't think that has gone so very far. I think what it's managed to do, I'm hoping, is convince people that if you have this, you need help and that it's okay to call for help um, and that it's important and that it's better to get help when you're in need than, than the alternative. But I don't think that's quite the same as stripping away the, the implied judgment that if two people went through exactly the same circumstance, one might get PTSD and the other one might not, where the only, you know, ceteris paribus, all things being equal, the difference is that the one guy is mentally tougher uh, or mentally, you might not say tougher, mentally stronger, mentally more robust, maybe because of a loving mother and father, you know, uh, not because he's been... Well, maybe they've been desensitized, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe they, huh? they've had such a brutal upbringing that they are able to deal with harshness more accurately. Who knows? Could be classic, exactly. But but whatever the etiology is, whatever the causal background relationship is, that two guys, they're they're exactly the same in all ways. They go through exactly the same situation in all ways, but they're different in one way, and that's that the one guy is less prone to PTSD and the other one is more prone to PTSD. The one who's more prone gets it. Uh, that that's an undesirable trait and that uh, giving him the purple heart is is going to be then understood as rewarding an undesirable trait. Whereas with stepping on a landmine or having your arm blown off or something like that, uh, the same judgment doesn't follow. Now, I don't want to, I'm not trying to defend this. Um, I think I think that in a, I could imagine a society where this argument doesn't hold, but I don't think America's changed so much that this argument doesn't hold there now. Um, and 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 the test will be if someone re-brings it up because there are uh, veterans who think that this would be good for 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 veterans who suffer PTSD that that they would feel more respected and less. Um, you know, part of the problem is is the the second order effects, as you were saying. Um, but at the moment, it seems to me that the, 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 the that the main fo- that the focus has gone away from trying to bestow them with these honors and gone towards trying to say this is a medical condition uh, and treat it like a medical condition, much like drug abuse. You know, just uh, we're going to try and destigmatize it without trying to valorize it. So here's a here's a here's another example of the same thing, which is Wall Street bonuses after the two thousand and eight global financial crisis, the American government bails out banks, top starts out at 350 billion under George Bush, gets raised to 750 billion, gets raised to 1.2, 1.3 trillion. The American government ends up later on buying back the assets or selling off the assets at a profit, uh, depending on how you measure it. I would say that they made a bit of a buck out of it. But at the time, it wasn't clear that they would. And most people were perceiving the government to have bailed out the banks and then the banks to have given bonuses to their management. And it was outrageous. Right. But at the same time... Particularly in a very specific institution that you may have been attending at the time. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, so I mean, I was, dude, at Princeton, like, dude, there was lots of guys with older friends or brothers or fathers, whatever, working. I mean, Larry Diamond, whatever. I don't want to, we had like the CEO of the biggest bank in, um, not Larry Diamond, what is his name? Anyway, of Barclays Bank. Uh, his daughter was in my, um, in my eating club. And it was, it was fun to, she was very graceful and beautiful, but it was fun to see her sort of blush at the breakfast after her father had been dragged in front of a congressional committee and sort of fired from the UK branch of things. Because it's just like, you know, but like, you know, like not a bad guy, but, you know, yeah, we were kind of, I was in a strange place to consider it. Harvey Rosen, Bush's advisor, was our professor and some of Obama's advisors were coming through the Woody Woo building. We could come and sit in on their chats. The consequentialist argument was strongly in favor of you've got to do this. The banks really are too big to fail. If you don't bail them out, it's a blixem nightmare. It's going to be so much worse for the man on the street. The rules-bound argument was like, once when the bank has got the money, they have to have the right to determine how they roll it out. And if they want to roll it out in bonuses, let them do it. And those arguments, did I read them in the Wall Street Journal. I heard them in the cafe, in the cafe, in the eating club. No one, no one who wasn't being paid to like plow through the slings and arrows of social opprobrium was saying it out loud. Even people who passionately believed that, as uncomfortable as it is, it's the right thing to do, were burying that deep, 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 deep. In their in their WhatsApp, you know, they were not putting it on Facebook. They weren't making jokes about it in public. They would right. look left and look right before because even beginning the conversation. People tend to not like being swarmed by an angry horde of bees. And what is it that what is it that made people the most angry? I don't know. What was it? On Sandals' reading, it's that you're rewarding failure. It's not even that you are <laughs> like they're rich and whatever. It's like these. Flippin' losers had no idea what they're doing. They've made half their banks bankrupt, and the other half are only alive because the government bailed them out. And now no, you're I rewarding like, it. We don't like rewarding failure. What are you doing? I, I, I like that one because I think that this is this is a massively understated uh, preference in the way that people look at politics. Is people like strength and victory, an enormous amount, and. And an enormous amount of, for example, why Donald Trump managed to take over the Republican Party was precisely that, uh, is that he made people feel like he was strong and that he would be victorious, as he himself said. We're going to win so much, we're going to get tired of winning. You're going to get tired of winning. Oh and God. the Democrats are exactly the same under Barack Obama, but yeah. they just never admitted it. <laughs> no, they did. Dude, I, dude at Princeton, it was like, guys, the Grand Coalition... Obama's, oh my word, Obama's figured out how to unite all of the racial minorities and the gays. Yeah, but, uh, but it's not, it's not, it's not, it's so, I agree that is people sort of. And they were like, uh, if you add it all up, it. it's more, no, they were like, if you add it all up and you see the immigrants and the dreamer programs and whatever, dude, straight white males that have not been to university are never going to be near the winning side ever again. The Obama coalition is going to rule until Jesus comes. That was the line. And it's, no, no. So I agree. I agree that was the line. The but it was never, it was never um, presented. Uh, it's usually not presented as like a sort of outright gloating. It's always like, 
well, look, if we analyze the demographics, it's always kind of yeah. tried to pass all yeah. through the no, pseudo intellectual analysis lens. <laughs> You 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 slurred there um, in my yeah, but I think it's just sorry pseudo intellectual analysis lens. Very good, uh, very good. <laughs> yeah, no, I, dude. Look, I think I think that I am gonna pull. Uh, I I think you were in high school and I was in America at the time. Uh, right. In the first, so like after, dude, after twenty ten, like the initial Obama machine, there was nothing like it. Uh, of course, there was, you know, oh, Obama by 2010, it's like Obama overpromised, and you know he got elected in the teeth of a global financial crisis. It was it was tough times. It was his um, his initial halo was was never going to sustain itself. But in those initial halo days, when dudes like sitting around with Republicans, independents, like children of Republicans and, and registered independents, who you know my my first buddy voted for John McCain. Um, dude, all, all of us were hugging and crying when Barack Obama was elected, and the Democrats saw that, and many of them openly gloated about how we're we're never going to lose ever again because we've we've nailed the formula. Or I can't remember who it was, but someone referred to it as the coalition of the ascendant. Um, yes, which yes. is another part of what drove the Republican Party around the bend was because they started to believe it too. Uh, and I'm yes, they thought they're never going to win. Yes. Right, and I'm very convinced that an incredibly large, but mostly unsort un, un of, it's not talked about bluntly, but a very large part of why Republicans and Democrats feel the way they do on immigration, is entirely due to the fact that Democrats think that it will give them a majority forever, and Republicans think that it will mean their political extinction. Yeah. You generally have to get quite deep into the sort of the Ann Coulter books before you start yes. to see that being made explicit. Yes, no, totally. I totally agree. It's not. It's not something anyone talking about things that are difficult to talk about. It's like it political lobbyists, politicians that are really looking at what side their bread is buttered. I think there are deep theories, deep-seated, deeply believed convictions about the connection between immigration and the fate of one party or the other, and they're very difficult to talk about because it sounds. Ooh, doesn't sound great either way. But it also because if you're a Republican, also, it's like why right. why won't these immigrants vote for you? What like what is it about them? What, what is wrong with you? What yeah, is, exactly. What is <laughs> what about you is so off-putting to someone who has like swum through muck to get to America? Why why does someone who loves America so much that they would go through a desert with two liters of water in their backpack? Why would they? Those lovers of America, why would they never? Why would they never vote for you even fifty years later? Like if you're saying you're never going to win, like what? Yes. What is it? <laughs> it is a. It's hard to talk about, but but and dude, oddly enough, Trump is exactly the first thing that I said when Elena brought this example up to me. In fact, with the previous example with the Purple Heart, because I, you know, I was I've told you the story. In 2012, I was at a very fancy dinner with some high-powered people. Um, in the American literary scene or, or, or news scene, funny scene. Um, and one of them said, Do, you know, Trump had actually just dropped out. He'd made a strange presidential announcement in 2012. This is the election with Romney, Barack Obama. Romney loses because he put his dog on the roof and was caught on a hot mic saying that 47% of Americans are takers. 
in you know, I think well, in one way to summarize it. Um, uh, but Trump had put a little a little toe in the water and then had pulled it back just before we had this dinner. And I had seen that on the news. And as a as a university senior who was like set the record for the most plays starred in by a university senior, like couldn't shut me up. I was irritating even then. Um, it was amazing to anyone that I'd seen any news, including myself. Like I hadn't registered that I'd seen the news. And they were trying to figure out these editors and uh, whatnot like where do, where do college students see the news and my answer was well there's a tv screen in the dining hall and if i'm stuck eating alone there's no sound on but there's closed cap there's captions there that you can read and i so i see cnn and they're like so that's your main source of news i was like realistically probably yes like also what my friends tell me i don't do facebook more than once a week for half an hour um and i've given up on reading the new york times because it's I'm just you know I'm, I'm too busy <laughs> I'm too busy hitting on babes or whatever it was that it was interesting um, so, I was told at the time Donald Trump's going to be the most likely wild card candidate for president in 2016 like watch out this guy's going to do it and four years later I could have been like like jumping up and down from the rooftops and calling it and I would have been like the only South African. And all of the arguments were laid out dude, by, by brilliant people uh, who totally understood what they were talking about. Fabulously intelligent people and connected who'd, who'd, who'd hung out with Trump personally and, 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 and most of the name brand American politicians. Um, I didn't because when Trump insulted John McCain and said, John McCain, he's, he says he's a hero, but he's not a hero. I like my war heroes uncaptured. The captured ones are losers. He's a loser. I know he was tortured. That's why his hands don't lift up. That's very sad. Very, very sad. He's a loser. Just weak. because it's sad doesn't mean he's not a loser. He's weak. And I was like, dude, I have flown on american airplanes i've been in the subway i've been in like rural america i've been in big city new york i've been in university towns from super liberal ones like brown to conservative ones in virginia dartmouth like i have seen not all of america i've been to stanford california san francisco uh uh I feel like I've seen enough of America to know that when when that these people love their army. Like when a soldier walks into an airplane, people flip and stand up and say, thank you for your service. When he walks into a train, people do that. On a bus, driving between two cities, like there is, there is a kind of deference and respect that they have for the uniform. There really, really is. And I'm not saying it's every single person, but like on any given bus, it's a lot of the people. Veterans board airplanes for other people. Yeah. For example. It's amazing. And I was like, these people love the uniform. They're never going to stand for a guy who insults an actual war hero who was fought bravely and then was caught by the Japanese and then was tortured nearly to the death. Vietnamese. And like the Vietnamese. <laughs> the Vietnamese. Yes. Oh my god. Um no, I knew I knew that and, and, and the most the most the the key the key thing that cemented his hero status was because he was the son of an admiral or something. They offered to exchange him for like more than just one prisoner, like a sort of lopsided exchange, and he refused to go along with it. 
Uh, and that was one of the reasons yeah. why they tortured him because they said, oh, okay, well, if you're going to be a hero, then you're going to have to prove it. And so they... Mm. Mm. Dude, and, and, and then Trump insulted like some... I can't remember the story. Maybe you can remember. He insulted like some fallen soldiers... Yeah, it was, it was a, were, what are they called? Were not like white. Gold Star family. It was like a Muslim yes. American family or something. Muslim whose American whose, family. Whose son had fought in, I think it was Afghanistan or Iraq and had died like heroically. And he he called them names just around the time of the, of the nomination conference. And that was actually and when his polling was, I think, at its lowest. Dude, and I was just like, there is no ways, there's no ways that you can insult people who've been killed and people who've been tortured and captured in an American uniform and get elected president. When that happened, I went along with the line of he's doing it as a joke. He's hoping to raise brand name awareness so that he can sell Trump steaks. And hey, look, man, he might have been. <laughs> well, you know, but the, but the Purple Heart story and the Wall Street story and what you've just said about the love of strength, what he was doing was saying, I love strength. And there's this great QI, um, it's a funny British show, kind of uh, uh, question about, you know, what accent did most British ace pilots have in World War II? The right war. <laughs> Sorry again about confusing Japan and Vietnam. Oh, my word. Um, and, 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 you know, yeah. most British people think it's, yeah, say. You probably wouldn't have survived a Japanese internment camp. No, I don't think, yeah. <laughs> he also, I mean, he'd also be a, would not have made it long enough to have been alive like in as recently as he was. Um, but okay. So like uh, British pilots uh, were not mostly from uh, Eton and Harrow and rugby and uh, Gordonston. Uh, most of them were actually slightly yobbish chaps, uh, you know, 60, 70, 80% of them or whatever were just uh, regular Brits or foreigners from Canada and the like. And uh, this and was Poland. sort of a surprise, and, and and Poland, and but then they were going through stats about the accents that people trust most when they hear it over the intercom from the pilot in in the UK, and the UK is so wonderful because accents really are kind of disconnected from race, like there are Cockney black dudes, white dudes, sort of brown dudes, whatever color you want to choose. Uh, there's dudes who are talking Cockney accents and posh accents and Brummy accents and this and that. And there's definite, like, I think the most favored one was like a gentle Scottish brogue. <laughs> People feel really at ease. They hear like, oh, here we go. And I know I can't do it. <laughs> I sound too sing song. But you know what I'm, you, not not the heavy, oh, haggis, haggis. Yeah. <laughs> That's not good. Not, People really don't like that. <laughs> not someone who, who's been speaking Gaelic until five minutes ago. No, that's not good. But if you've just got, if you just slight roll in your R's as you as you're going along describing the weather that's about to, you know, very sunny. People really dig that. Okay, there are just these um, uh, sort of these, these giveaways about um, what we latch onto as as bestowing trust and confidence, and the and the, and the panelists' theory, which was designed to be funny but which i think was quite serious actually a truth said in jest is like really what you want is someone who's posh either in the scottish way or whatever way not because you think they're qualified but because you think they're lucky 
because really what do you want in a pilot did <laughs> yeah no exactly <laughs> oh, that's really what cool. a lucky that. pilot <laughs> That's when it all comes down to it. Like you want the surgeon who, if he had to blindly put his hand into the hole in your body, he would he would squeeze the $2 coin that's been dislodged there rather than accidentally squeezing your kidney because he's just lucky. He's not better. He's just lucky. So people really like strength. They really like luck. They really like success. They really want to punish weakness, even if it's not really weakness, but it just is in the vicinity enough that it's like, you know, bad luck even if it's completely undeserved being tortured it still has a flavor of taboo and this is a very ancient sort of shift um uh, uh on hegel's account between the ancient days and uh, you know the medieval or renaissance days in in moral judgments is away from a kind of shame culture where it doesn't matter what you were trying what you're were in control of it's just were you tainted or not towards a kind of more guilt culture which is more about personal responsibility but that shame quality never quite goes away the esteem economy never removes itself nor its its basic uh predilection for rewarding success and punishing failure according to whatever the standards are of that little esteem subgroup and 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 that is what trump that that was that, that was his, exactly the moment where i jumped off and was like, Trump, Trump can't be serious. He's dissing John McCain for being a loser. Dude, that should have been the time to like, if the American to be like, if this guy is still doing this, if he if he didn't wake up the next day and go, I was joking, that was hilarious. Uh, this has all been an experiment to see <laughs> like how mad the country is. Like, if he's still going the next day, then you really need to worry because he's just selling raw victory. Anyway, I I I missed that trick. That's definitely in. A, a trick that I missed a little bit. Um, okay, I'll do one more example from from this uh, philosopher Sandal about um, about judgments on different categories working out in a different way. And this one was um, from a, a boarding school, a British um, like the girls' version of of Eton, or maybe it is a university dorm. University dorm house, sorry. Uh, it's all ladies' version of all souls at Oxford. And it had been around for a couple of hundred years because Brit British women were allowed to read and all kinds of nice things, you know. Let the ladies read, said the 17th century <laughs> brutes. Uh, and, and good of them to say at least that. Um, but the the places had been policed a lot like a nunnery, and times were changing. And there was a bit of a problem because gentlemen were crawling into the dormitories and hanky panky was taking place. And the matron of the ladies' dormitory of the university college did not approve. But it's difficult to talk about things, right? She had this rules-based she and this virtue-based argument, but she couldn't say what her problem was with it because to say so would be to already pour disrepute onto this place. Right, it would be to shame the poor young woman. But much more than that because she was kind and of… And the institution, right. And the institution. But, but more than that… 
institution that are, that is filled with harlots. <laughs> they were like, they'd consider this and they're like, this is very bad. But then they, and this is like, you know, in South Africa, journalists who say like, you know, the IRR criticized years ago, you guys are saying all kinds of terrible things about the country. You're just meanies. And then the pushback is like someone who's truly proud, who's truly bonded to this institution is going to be prepared to criticize it to make it worthy of honor and respect. That's real pride. What you're talking about is vanity. If you don't want to admit the failures to keep a good a reputation, you're just vain. Uh, real honor means uh, being able to, yeah, show that this is bad and if that's part of the means of creation. So here's what really held them back after that bit of tete-a-tete. -tete. They said, if we say this, we're just going to be laughed at because it's 1922 and now the ladies can vote and the war's over and and people are, or oh, 1942, whatever it is, people are wearing mini skirts. There are women wearing mini skirts in magazines and there are sexual innuendo jokes being made by Princess Anne. Maybe it was 1962. I can't remember when it was. But it is. No, that sounds like 62. <laughs> I'm I'm making up the princess Anne thing. <laughs> I'm just trying to go through my like no, mini skirts. Mini skirts is 1962 or 1952. It's not. Yeah, I'm making up mini skirts. Whenever it was, the point was that they were right. saying that right. there's no, been there's been there's been a sexual revolution. The norms have shifted, and and although we think it's very important to 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 not let the ladies be hanky panked, um, society's not going to get behind us. So do you know what they argued instead? They said, we're going to implement a system. Uh, we're, very, we're very worried, consequentially, about the sustainability of the, of the dorm rooms because people are having guests over, and that means more people are using the loos, the lavatories, the toilets. More people are having baths, drawing hot water, electrical expenses, uh, dirtier sheets more often we don't want to get into why but you know it's a problem more laundry has to be done sometimes the visitors and the guests put their laundry in with the dormitory laundry so if you want to come over you have to pay 50p and this would mean you'd have to write your name down and you'd have to pay the 50p and they thought this is going to create a nice disincentive some guys are still going to do it but this is going to strongly disincentivize them. And it's free for the ladies to go and stay at the guys' dorm rooms. And that's really what they want. They're like, just don't flip and do this here and corrupt the innocent virgins. Like, if you're already a, a slut, I think was their way of thinking about it. Go and do it elsewhere. Dude, headline the next day. St. Anne's dormitory at Oxford University. Have a sleepover for 50p. <laughs> <laughs> So instead of uh, instead of it, people implying that they were harlots, people were just saying it outright. <laughs> I was like, management is I, management has said you can sleep with one St. Anne's woman per night for fifty p. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the thing is, it is so difficult for them to talk about that they didn't have a good consequentialist argument. The rules-bound argument that mattered to them, uh, thou shalt not have pre-wedlock sex or whatever, as a as a as a you know, you must be a virgin bride, 
was not a rule by an argument that could get them very far. So they tried, you know, they tried this uh, this esteem game. Uh, sorry, what they tried is because what they really cared about was the esteem, was preserving the image of this place being um, quite chaste and, and the sort of place that upstanding uh, aristocrats should continue sending their kids. They tried making a, a consequentialist argument that wasn't their genuine motivation, and it completely backfired. So this is a very interesting case where you've got these three different ways of, of making judgments about what's right and wrong, and you make the judgment on the basis really of the third one, and that dictates how you go forward in a way that makes the third one worst of all uh, as an outcome. It's, it's, it's really very terrible. So I think that that is... I think the underlying I don't think that there's one underlying message um from from Sandal. I don't think he's uh a very programmatic thinker in that way. Um it's more warnings, like a series of flag posts and warnings. And I right. think they're good ones. Like don't expect it all to make sense. Don't expect like if you're expecting it to work without compromise, you're doomed. And just realize that if there is something that is really the core issue and no one's allowed to talk about it. Because somehow the core issue is no longer the consequence and it's no longer the real rules that we're all standing by. It's actually just some impression. Then you are in a king's new clothes situation and it's bound to end in embarrassment. <laughs> no, I think that's, I think that's very wise. Uh, but but uh, it sort of reminds me of that old level idea that uh, of, of kind of epistemic humility that don't be a hundred percent sure about what exactly is going to happen when things change. Uh, it's a sort of small C conservative sort of liberalish point, which is why, one of the reasons why we don't like any in, any one entity to have too much power. Is because it's very difficult to make <laughs> decisions sometimes, particularly when it comes to policy um, and rules, and uh, you can accidentally turn your girl's dormitory into a whorehouse just by specifically <laughs> trying to avoid that outcome. <laughs> like by trying to avoid the faintest sort of yes. <laughs> kind of suggestion, you've gone full playboy. Uh, right, right. <laughs> without even stars over the nipples. It's <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so <laughs> it's terrible. It's terrible, and I and I but and I think it is funny, and I, but I think it did. I feel trapped by this. I mean, part of part of um, I don't want to get into the war, but part of the reason that this excited me is is I thought, geez, like I really do feel like I struggle to th I struggle to think about the war in Ukraine. I struggle to talk about the war because I because I I think maybe. Because there are these three different kinds of judgments happening. It's not just that we disagree about facts. You know, people disagree about facts. It's like there are, it's like there are there there are esteem concerns. There are consequential concerns, and there are deontic concerns that really go in different directions. And I think I think that's true for people that are trying to be neutral, for people that are trying to be pro one side and for people that are trying to be pro the other side. I don't think from any of those positions that all of the kinds of judgments are, are lining up as, as neatly as they'd like them to, as I'd like them to, uh, from, from my position. I think that in South Africa, it's difficult to talk about good news 
because from from the perspective of people that want the ANC to be replaced, for there to be a peaceful transfer of power, for South Africa to become a, a robust democracy in that whole size sense of things, there's a worry that if things do get better sooner, maybe that's not going to happen, and you continue a kind of slow death by a thousand cuts. And so there right. is a kind of accelerationist thing in the air, which is a little bit concerning because, and no one's going to talk about accelerationism. No one but the most wonderful maverick Looney Tunes are going to talk up accelerationism. And I've always tried to talk them down, but I do feel that that force, I feel like that's a funny side of the force that's gone from fringe to kind of slightly more widespread. People are kind of more comfortable with this idea of like, well, it's tough. It's been tough. Let it continue being tough. Then let it get better. Let's not try and talk up the little bits of good news. Uh, for fear that that's going to help bolster the reputation of the incumbents. I think that's a strange I think that's a strange aspect of the moment that we're in. I don't think that it's exhaustive and I don't think that um, I think that uh, race relations it's always been difficult. Sexual relations it's always been there's always been like in race relations saying something like an equality of outcomes is not desirable per se. Thomas Sowell's argument, you know, he's like, right. some people wanted to put black people in their place, make it above, make it below. Other, you know, wherever that place is, it's 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 not good. Don't try not to put people in their place according to their race. That's a difficult thing to say. My argument, like, even if you do think it's a good outcome, aiming for it directly is not an easy way to get there. The teleological paradox it's like happiness or finding love right. or spontaneity you can't plan for it it'll be a good byproduct if you go about your business properly that's a difficult argument to kind of make on 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 tuesday i find myself on bella I, I find myself on on newsroom africa debating the basic education law amendment bill and i was like listening to these guys so excited about um invading you know like infiltrating afrikaans only schools with <laughs> Yes. Uh, with black students that's, that, uh, that don't speak any Afrikaans. It, it was like, it was so weird sitting with this like Stanabosch professor who was, you know, this like little old white lady, like not old, little young white lady, who's like, like salivating at the thought of this social engineering project. She's like, imagine how beautiful it would be. It's like, I really, in the, in the, in, it's, it, it, I get, you know, I grew up in Yeovil. All of my neighbors were different races uh, <laughs> as a little kid. Like I know, I know that from the outside it seems great. From the inside, what seemed great was that we that we could ride bicycles together and tell stories to each other. It really didn't matter very much. And then when I was in like all black circles or all white circles, like either way, it's just human beings. Um, I think you being very superficial. I didn't get a chance to say that. The thing that amazed me was that I try to argue from our papers that the, because the number of pupils has reduced by 900,000 in the last 20 years, sorry, the number of pupils has increased by 900,000, nearly a million. We've got a, nearly a million more pupils at any given time. Right. Because the population has grown, but there's like three and a half thousand less schools than there were 20 years ago. More we've got, we've got what you call a problem. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it is a serious problem. And the law says that the government has to build schools for kids. Like that is, there are some rights that are progressive rights, 
Like when the government gets enough money, it can give everybody uh, a hot shower. But like from the very beginning, the government has to flip and make sure every child can go in a classroom. And our government has not done that. So there's some classes that have got 80 kids and other classes have got 20 kids. Now what you want to do is try and solve the problem by taking some of the 80 kids and putting them in the classes with 20 kids in the schools. And by the way, the Afrikaans schools are 5% of the schools. They don't really have that small numbers. But, you know, this is the impression that you've got. Send them to the former white schools and it's all going to be okay. Dude, that is such a flippant, backward way to think about things. It's so punitive. It's so zero-sum. Why not leave the few schools that are still working? 5% of kids who start grade one finish matric with a math pass 12 years later. Like, keep that 5%, which is mostly black. Keep it alive. Rather than destroying it, so we have inequality, we have equality of everybody. Uh, not this is this is a, a hallmark of South African intelligentsia. The we're all crabs in the bucket, and the most important thing is that no crab escapes the bucket. Kind of thing. If you if, if you leave the bucket, you hate South Africa, and you want a party to come back. Like, dude. So I find myself sitting there and saying, dude, I was flabbergasted. It was an hour in. It was like eight o'clock at night. I'd been working all day. And I got a little bit philosophical for a moment. I can't believe that I did. But I said, listen, people, you know, I can't believe that I'm the guy trying to make the argument for selfishness. But here's how families work. You take care of your own children. There are poor people in this country who for the poor black people in this country who for the last hundred years have been flipping, waking up at 3 a.m., get on the bus, get on the train, go to like some awful industria to like make some money to uh you know eat and put shelter above their heads and and there are some joys in life but the greatest aspiration and joy and 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 value is their kids standing a chance of getting a better future not right. the neighbor's children not someone yeah. else's children not not like four villages down three to the left that child over there like that child might be wonderful and innocent, but do no one's no one is waking up at three o'clock in the morning to get on a train to go into a mine to make some money for that child. They're doing it for their own child. And that is not just South Africa, it's everywhere, and it's very important to harness that energy and not get in the way of that energy. Give more power to parents. If those if every parent in South Africa had a voucher that they could use to send their kid to their own school. Some parents would send them in the wrong place, but most parents would try it, would figure it out, would do better than the government. Yes, dude, the host and both panelists and 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 Tabo, the host is a good host and he's often nice about me. And you know, I get people agreeing with me. I've bragged about it last two weeks. Dude, nobody agreed with me. It's so difficult to talk about selfishness on TV, to talk about love, to talk about that kind of love which is narrow and focused on your family. It is so difficult once you've gotten into a political conversation where there's some worries about apartheid and worries about Afrikaans being evil, not as evil as Russian, but pretty evil, more evil than Russian, depends on who you ask, you know, whatever. It's like once you get to a certain place, you can't mention any anything like a family value. And I don't mean family values like don't be gay. That's not family values. That was someone else's idea of, 50 years ago about family values. That was a wrong idea. I mean, the value of nurturing and cherishing little human beings that are too useless to take care of themselves, but that are more entertaining right, until than Until they TV become productive and healthy until, in society. <laughs> until they, exactly. Like, right. you can't say that out loud 
on South African mm. TV without three people and then 12 people on Twitter being read out after the ad break saying, oh my God, who's that guy? <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, like, you know it's oh. amazing. It's amazing how difficult it is to talk about things that we that like like ninety five percent of South Africans, including that little lady, completely agree about when the camera's off. Yeah, which is that a mother's love is 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 a, is a is a is a narrow and powerful and and generally speaking good thing that you've got to you've got to be aware of it. If anything, it can be too much. You know? <laughs> no, Gabriel. You know, it's South Africa is run by the principle in so many ways that uh, the most important thing is that everyone gets equally mauled by the bear. <laughs> Dude, what a strange! I mean, the Trump like you're a loser if you got captured thing is very strange. The South African you're an evil person if you love your own children more than <laughs> I think it's far out. I find it, and it's not how most people actually think. It's just this, mm. it's this third way of thinking. It's not what how people mostly think about consequences. It's not how people mostly think about rules. It's somehow this 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 superficial idea about. I mean, and Sandal's way of putting it, and the, and I think he's wise to put it like this. What is the wisdom behind dissing price gouges, and? Uh, Wall Street bonus receivers and so on, is that even though what they're doing is not wrong in itself, if it was thought to be a normally acceptable practice, then people would do it even where it's not appropriate and you'd slip into a nightmare. That's why saying greed is good is a bad idea because there are narrow self-interested zones in which there are narrow zones in which self-interest is wonderful. But if you just say greed is good, then some guy is walking past, you know, someone else's wallet and he picks it and puts it in his own pocket. And that guy's, you know, just sitting at the restaurant with his wallet next to it, but he's not looking at it. Like, that's not good. Yeah. So you can't, you've got to be careful with how you put it. It's like, we're so worried. So Americans are so worried about losing that they've got this kind of convention or they've had this kind of convention or maybe more on the right or whatever. There's this kind of convention that winning is everything. And South Africans are so worried about, I don't know, seeming selfish about, about there being too much greed that we're stuck in a conversational paradigm well, yeah, well, that is perfectly designed to keep poverty getting worse. Like, cause, it's like, because we've been run by communists for almost three decades now. Uh, and before that, we were, we were ruled by you know, uh, sort of fascisty communitarians who yeah. want who, who believe that the folk was more important than the family. Did yeah, everybody's all about them big, big bloodlines. Yeah. Yo, dude, one day South Africa is gonna be is gonna make different mistakes, better mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's the goal, isn't it? But uh, I think yes. I think we should wrap up precisely on that note because I think that's a very good ending note. Um, do you have a recommendation? I do. Please go ahead. Uh, so I've been reading a little bit about Saudi Arabia recently just because I find it an interesting country and I'd recommend an article from The Dispatch called Saudi Arabia Welcomes a Likely Reset with the US. And this is because mm. the Saudis um, are very, very annoyed with Joe Biden. Uh, because he, on the campaign trail, 
said that they were he said the quiet part out loud about their relationship that the Saudis are <laughs> <laughs> are not uh, not a very pleasant yeah. state to do any sort of business with. Yeah. Um, and uh, Mohammed bin Salman said, "Okay, well, if, the, if you're going to be nasty to us, and then we're going to be nasty to you." And so he's been very uncooperative on. He's also skeptical. The Saudis are skeptical that the the Americans aren't going to screw them over on the Iran deal by giving yeah. something favorable to Iran. So, yeah. uh, for example, Saudi Arabia's main contribution to the U.S. strategic position has been that whenever the Americans say, please pump more oil, they do. Uh, and this time when the war in Ukraine started, the Americans said, please pump more oil so the Russians don't make a huge amount of money. The Saudi said, mm, nah. <laughs> My finger, I know there's a button right there. Like in Saudi Arabia, you throw your straw into the ground, oil starts coming out of it. Right, it's it's not an effort. They just, but they were too busy. They well, didn't say no. They just uh, said, "Uh, we're busy. We're busy, busy, busy." Yeah, apparently, uh, according to some news reports, Mohammed bin Salman literally wasn't taking Biden's calls. He just ignored. That's them. what I'm saying, dude. He was very busy. <laughs> yeah, he's very busy. Mohammed bin Salman plays video games. Did you know that? Because he's actually quite young. He's like only he's only like two or three years younger than uh, older than than you. I think. In fact, he might mm. even be your age. I can't remember exactly. Um, Dude, imagine being anyway. our age and you've put most of your family under house arrest in a massive hotel. <laughs> the world is large and weird. Indeed it is. Um, he's also, you know, in some, by some reckonings, you could say he's possibly one of the richest people on earth as well, precisely because he controls the Saudi state, uh, which is interesting. Anyway, so yeah, check that out. It's kind of interesting because it shows that uh, Biden is in a very difficult position. And because all of his incredibly terrible messaging efforts about inflation and the price of petrol being too high, I saw his latest one was, uh, what is it? Uh, gas stations must lower their prices because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> so I, I assume he's going to go there and he's going to throw away all of his principles and beg Mohammed bin Salman to print, uh, pump more gas so that he doesn't, uh, his party doesn't get wiped out in November. But it's far too late for that. So, <laughs> oh, dude, I can't. I still can't handle his new press secretary on the question. <laughs> no, dude, have you? <laughs> yeah, have you done anything about this? Um, have you done anything about this? She was like, "Hold on, I haven't been asked that question in a week." Uh, <laughs> Uh, 30 and, seconds and, later. Uh, oh, God, it's so bad. And, yeah. and just, just a reminder uh, uh, to anyone who doesn't think that there is left-wing media bias in America. <laughs> just imagine if a Trump press secretary had done that. It would have been on SNL for years. <sighs> yes. <laughs> it would have been in the New York Times talking about the incompetence of the administration, what this says about America. Everyone would have written a think piece about it. But I've literally heard no one else talk about it apart from you. <laughs> and uh, and it's just uh, because it's funny, can't we laugh at people whatever side of the aisle they come from when they're funny? Human beings are so useless. If you can't laugh <laughs> at a human being, then I don't see the point. Like, I can't. Oh, my word. No, 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 no. Yeah. Okay, shall I do my recommendation? I, li I like sure. it, dude. I haven't. Um, I'd like to catch up on the on the Saudi updates because I've been worried about. Do Saudi Arabia and America have to get along? I think for regional stability. Yeah, unfortunately, well, and America just has to behave. America has to be easier to get along with, honestly. But 
Well, it's schizophrenic is part of the problem. And this is one of the reasons why I America think a lot of countries, countries. Are, are really start, <laughs> not not uh, trusting the U.S. right more anymore because you can't predict what their foreign policy is going to be because all of it is made based off of, you know, what will sell well in the polls now. And it swaps, swaps to the opposite of what it was four years ago every time there's an election. So, you know, trying it's to... Such and an odd <laughs> way to run the world, hey? Like, exactly. If you were to design... Dude, design that system from scratch. Like, no one... <laughs> This is about You're the worst getting, way to design it. It's like grade 10 science Olympiad. That's the volcano project that the teacher just didn't even <laughs> bother. Like not to, not uh, even a gold star. Just just saw it, moved on. <laughs> yes. No comments. This is clearly a fail. But it's what we've settled on. It's what we're stuck with. And we're going oh, to be stuck with it for a while. Okay, so my recommendation I'm, if, if I can squeeze in two, I'm going to try and squeeze in a little link to some work by Michael J. Sandel um, that, that, that touches on just, I think, a very deeply pessimistic, like, there's not enough pessimism around. Like, get over it. If you're looking for, if you're looking for heaven on earth, uh, the closest that I've seen this week was my niece uh, in, a, in a sort of, a metal bucket that is about three meters by two meters uh, looking for a rusted bolt. Like it's where her father throws the old farm equipment away. And her favorite thing to do is go and find something beautiful, something to keep. Okay. That's, that's it. <laughs> that's the best it gets. <laughs> it's amazing. It's wonderful. It's not that bad. Actually, it's pretty amazing, but it's not getting better. Um, in a way, so it's fine, you know. It's okay to, it's okay. Compromise is okay. Um, and 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 I think Sandal's good on that. Good depressive chap who who tells a good story. Um, but I really want to uh, throw in a link to the Constitutional Court judgment, the Supreme Court judgment from the United States on the abortion matter. Um, it has been historic. We have talked about it. I think. One yeah. of the things I really like about two cricket three podcasts on it, I think. Yeah, dude, I, I, I'm so glad that this is a platform where we've been able to talk about. I think one of the most difficult things to talk about in the whole wide world. I think we've both got uh, good things to say about it, and we've said some of it. We don't have to get into it again. Um, but, but now some of the wisest or worst, as you may see it, I, I really respect the, the Supreme Court. Uh, people, you know, they've they've put pen to paper. They've really considered this very heavily. Never mind the leak draft. Here we get the final thing. Um, I haven't seen it at all. I'm waiting. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I'm recommending it without seeing it because I'm recommending it on the basis of the court. And and, and, and also quite frankly, and, the fact that it's going to be talked a lot by a lot of people. It's going to be talked about a lot by a lot of people who have not for, read it for decades. Yeah, like you're and investing so, in being the smartest person at the dinner party, right? At the dinner party, for, <laughs> for yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, it, reading this will make you will will make you a galaxy brain amongst mere mortals. And 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 you know, there's a dissenting opinion. There's a major opinion. That's a convention that did not start with the Supreme Court, but it's something that they figured out, and a whole bunch of courts around the world have learned to follow on. And I think that's a beautiful convention. Uh, I. 
I'm I really am as eager to read the dissent as I am to read the majority opinion because I because I'm worried because I've got doubt. I'm sort of inclined to believe that the majority opinion is right. But I really really am I really have got my doubts. I I've had a few lessons at university about this. I've read a little bit about this. These justices have have had the resources of America's brightest legal minds spending hundreds of thousands of man hours gathering together the best arguments and distilling them and boiling them down and distilling them and boiling them down again and distilling them and boiling them down again. And it's like it's like a whole nation's wisdom, the best version of it, you know, turning an ox into a bullion cube. This is like turning a flippin' herd into, yeah, into something that takes a couple of hours to, to digest. I'm really looking forward to it, and that's my recommendation. Cool. And with that, all I can say is keep the flag of liberty flying. Grr, grr.